This is The Uncharted Life with Jacob Lyles. Hi everybody, welcome back. It's good to be back. It's been a little while since I released an episode. I was having some audio quality issues, which is a problem that often plagues new podcasters, but I'm learning and figuring things out, so hopefully that'll get better and I'll get these shows out a little bit quicker. Today, I'm very happy to bring you a conversation that I had with Joel and Danny, two staff members at San Francisco Suicide Prevention, which is a crisis hotline that is run out of San Francisco. Um, but San Francisco suicide prevention is, is a little special. It's one of the, it's, for, well, first of all, it was the first suicide hotline of its kind, uh, in the country. And it really set the model for all the other suicide hotlines that are available in this country. And in San Francisco, it's one of the larger ones in the country. So we also answer quite a few calls that get routed to us from around the country, uh, through national hotline numbers. Um, so in my conversation with Joel and Danny, um, I talk with them about why they joined the hotline and, uh, what they've learned from, from working there, uh, what's been surprising about it and a lot of the nuts and bolts of running a crisis hotline. And this is a special episode for me because I'm also a volunteer at the, the San Francisco suicide hotline. Um, I was a very new volunteer when I recorded this, and I'm still pretty new, but I've gotten a little bit more experience under my belt. But I was very happy to bring you an episode that is closer to, that is close to my heart and close to my life. So let's jump right in. Welcome, Danny and Joel. Thank you for being on the show. Um, I know you both from volunteering at San Francisco Suicide Prevention. And I was hoping you could start by maybe introducing yourself and saying what you do at the organization. Hi, uh, yeah, uh, my name is Danny Ricci. I've been working at SF Suicide Prevention since um, about May, 2018. So a couple months now. And uh, I'm the youth outreach coordinator, which means what I do mostly is I go to high schools and um, other organizations serving youth and talk to teenagers about suicide and mental health. Yeah. And uh, my name is Joel Goldsmith. I'm the volunteer coordinator at San Francisco Suicide Prevention. I've been there since 2014, first as a volunteer and now as staff. My role is managing all of the volunteers who answer calls. So it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week service. I keep the schedule together. I lead the trainings and I do pretty much like all the other little things that keep the place running. And uh, full disclosure uh, for people listening. I'm, I also have a, a very minor role at SF suicide prevention. I just started being a volunteer there. So I got, I got trained by, Joel quite a bit and and sometimes Danny and uh, now I'm uh, one of the people that Joel manages and uh, taking taking calls on the hotline um, so uh, thank you for for being here and uh, thought maybe maybe a good place to start you know when I talk to people um, they're I think people will find this kind of work kind of fascinating and 
but also there's a way that um, people, it's, it's an area of life that people don't look at a lot. Like they, it, like we want to sort of avoid uh, that there is an impulse to be adverse to, um, to discussion of, of suicide. Um, so I thought maybe, maybe it might be a good place to start to talk about like what got you interested in this work and, and, uh, what drew you to wanting to help people in this way? Yeah. Um, so I kind of fell into the work. It wasn't the most calculated decision. I didn't have any personal experience with mental health. I had never sought treatment or anything like that. No past of, uh, thoughts of suicide. And I didn't have any friends or family members that I knew had attempted. Not at the time. Since I've started working in suicide prevention, I've learned a lot more about the people in my life. Um, and uh, so suicide was a pretty foreign thing for me. But I'd always kind of been the emotional support for my friends and family when things uh, weren't going too well. And uh, I wanted, and I was good at, at supporting them and then not feeling bad not taking their pain home with me. And I started thinking maybe that's a, a usable skill. And then I heard a story on the radio about someone volunteering at a suicide hotline and thought, huh, maybe I should apply to do this. Um, but yeah, it, it didn't start with like a background in psychology and school or, or any of those things. I just kind of took a, a leap of, of faith that this would be a good fit. And it was, it was really lucky. Oh man, I'm kind of uh, the opposite in terms of uh, my experience with suicide because I've been kind of uh, all over the place with that. Like I have attempted, I've thought about it, I've had, had struggled to mental illness for pretty much my entire adult life and some of my childhood. Um, I've known maybe six or seven people who have died by suicide and many others who have attempted and survived. Um, but I started volunteering at suicide or crisis hotlines uh, two years ago after a friend of mine um, came out to me as trans um, via text message and told me that she was having a really hard time with it. And so um, been, she reached out to me because I am trans and non-binary and so she, and I'm visible. So she, um, she was like, I know you've gone through some of this before, so I wanted to talk to you and, uh, and, uh, try and work this out. I've been having a really hard time, et cetera, et cetera. She told me some things she was going through and then I tried to meet up with her, but I never managed to get a, uh, an actual date set on. And then a week later I hadn't heard from her. And then I found out, uh, she ended up killing herself. And that was when I started volunteering at the LGBT hotline. I wasn't one of those people who sort of blamed myself or felt guilty, but I, it was more, that I, um, upon rereading her text messages within, in that new light, I realized there were so many warning signs that I hadn't paid attention to, and that stuff that I could have, that could possibly have been avoided if I'd had more training or known more about this stuff. And so, and I thought, well, I can't do anything for her now, but I can do the, something for all of the other people who go through this, As particularly in the LGBT community, suicide rates among the transgender community are extremely high compared to anywhere else. And so, I started volunteering at the LGBT center or LGBT help center in San Francisco. Um, and then, um, from there, uh, it became something that I did regularly. And so when I saw a job off, uh, opening at SF suicide prevention, I thought it seemed like a natural, um, a natural step to take. Mm 
Thanks for thanks for sharing that. Um, has your experience um, for for either of you has your experience uh, working at at these hotlines like have it has it has it been what you expected or has it has it um, have you sort of like found found the thing that that you were looking for when you when you got into it? Yes and no. I mean, it's so much better than I expected. But I think I came in thinking that like that volunteering at a crisis center would really like would really test my mettle and my emotional fortitude and kind of like push that theory that I had that I could take on a lot of stuff. Um, and the reality was it kind of was the opposite. I really liked all of the callers. I found it a lot more rejuvenating than I found it exhausting. And I really kind of fell in love with the work for different reasons than I came in. Um, and, uh, and then, but the other thing is as I was there and I continued my education, I hadn't finished college when I started volunteering and, and now I have, um, so much of my schooling, I studied humanities, uh, was about the how essential it is for people to have a platform to tell their stories and to see their stories represented. Um, and the suicide hotline does that better than anywhere else. Anyone can call in, tell their story, have it validated, not have it judged. And even with people who are in like these kind of desperate and hopeless places where things objectively can't improve in their life, um, get something from calling because it's powerful to tell your story and not have it like shut down. And there's so few spaces like that. That's kind of the thing that's kept me engaged. So, you know, I came in because I heard a story on the radio. Storytelling has always been important to me. Uh, I wasn't thinking about it from that, that perspective when I came in, but as soon as that surfaced for me, that was the thing that was, it was incredibly galvanizing. I was really excited. Hmm. Uh, I've sort of lost sight of the original question. Was that um, <laughs> how, whether, um, how it matched up with my expectations or what I was looking for from it? Yeah, you could answer yeah. that. Or, or if you have something else to say, you don't oh, have no, to no, for sure. pay uh, attention to the question. Yeah, okay. You can well, answer whatever question you want to answer. Um, well, uh, today for breakfast, I no, um, so <laughs> I... I think, similarly to Joel, I found it better than I was expecting, but I didn't expect it to be um, as... Well, I feel like a lot of volunteers come in expecting it to be sort of like a high-level like, crisis-type situation all the time. And as speaking as someone who had been suicidal for a long time, I know it's not like that. Like, depression isn't sort of like, oh, you need to die all the time. It's just sometimes just like long, lingering periods of loneliness and sort of like uh, inability to get things done and just sort of stagnation. And so it makes sense that someone would call um, a hotline in a time like that to just talk to somebody else. And so um, it was interesting being that somebody else. I'd never actually called a hotline before, though. I'd thought about it, but I was always too embarrassed. And uh, I, I don't know why I thought people on the other end would judge me, because why would they? Um, but um, being on the other side is, is very therapeutic for me. It's very um, fulfill, ful, fulfilling in its own way, because it, it feels... Um, uh, it's it's a it's a connection. It's a very brief connection, and it has boundaries, which is very important to me because um, with these kinds of connections, it's important to sort of like have a place where it fits in your life, but also be able to step aside and not 
um, be carrying everyone else's burdens all the time. And as someone who sort of takes these things on um, obsessively, I'm always trying to do so much and help everybody. Um, it, it helps me form my own boundaries with myself uh, as to how much I'm I let myself take on for this brief four-hour period of time. And then I step away and just go back to my own problems. And I'm sure for them it's the same, like for the 20 minutes or however long that we talk. Um, I carry their problems while we walk together and then um, I hand it back to them at the end and then we go our own ways. And it's, it's, it's this little transfer that we do um, that I think is really valuable. Thanks. Um, and, and Danny, you, you mentioned that you, uh, you work with youth, um, mm -hmm. and, and that's more in-person work? Yeah, yeah. Mostly what I do is I um, go to class. Oh, it's different every time. I'll go to classrooms. Um, I've been to, or, or the Juvenile Justice Center, or the YMCA, or wherever. Um, I go to classrooms and I talk to um, usually middle school or high school age students. And it'll be a presentation, some small interactive elements. I don't really do that much role playing as much as my predecessor did, but um, just I think I'm too awkward to pull that off sometimes. But my favorite part of what I do is I um, I, I I do the whole anonymous questions thing that I've I've been told people do with or sometimes do with sex ed, where people can ask um, things that they're too embarrassed to ask with their name on them. So they they give me these anonymous questions, and sometimes they get heckled. But um, sometimes you see really valuable insight. Sometimes you see people who need a little help, and um, you're able to provide them with the resources that they might need, and and it's super interesting. Yeah, the um. The the anonymity is an interesting piece, um, and like you were saying earlier, um, like you you felt too embarrassed to call a hotline, like when you were when when you were depressed, um, uh, and and I do feel like there's a, a certain stigma around um, conversation about mental health or depression or su suicidality in in, in culture. Um, it, do you feel like? Um, do you have any desire to see that changed or do you wish we dealt with that differently? Or do you feel like how we're dealing with it now in which there are some, some places where people talk openly about um, sort of their feelings and then other, most places like we push it under the, under the rug. Uh, like what's the, what's the right balance? Um, that's interesting. Cause I have a feeling, you know, what, what answer I'm going to give and that I think it's important that we talk about this stuff publicly and sort of casually like it's not a huge deal um like one teacher that I was when I was presenting to teachers um she was she she mentioned if you saw a kid limping or like you know like when they were coming to school that day you would ask oh what happened to you did you hurt your leg are you okay but and so and similarly if you notice someone who is that someone might be hurting emotionally it should be completely fine to just sort of check in and it doesn't have to be awkward or weird and um I think it should be um, more acceptable to talk about certain certain kinds of feelings because certain feelings are sort of more acceptable in society, especially for based on gender roles and so on and so forth. Um, but certain certain things are not acceptable, and the suicide rates for men are a lot higher than for than they are for women, and that's um, arguably um, one of the factors in that is that it is um, harder for men in certain cultures, especially mine as an Italian person, but uh, in, in certain cultures to talk about their feelings with each other because of this whole ingrained masculinity and machismo. Um, that's something I was raised with as a kid. Um, and I have had to undo that over the years. And it's something that we, people can't help. It's not as though 
we should be punishing people for this, but I think it's something that people need to learn to un to learn to unlearn. Um, have to unlearn culture, unlearn society, unlearn all this structure that we're sort of inherently taught by example by our parents and grandparents and generations before us, um, so that we can sort of bring mental illness um, to the forefront of our consciousness instead of sweeping it under the rug, and talk about it without it being a huge deal. Yeah, I feel um, lucky myself um, in that maybe it's part of moving out to California and, and adopting this culture, but I have a, a lot of friends that I feel like I can talk to uh, quite frankly about uh, how I'm feeling, um, even when some of that uh, isn't, um, even when I'm feeling bad. And I think the stigma is around um, if you're feeling sad or depressed uh, or, or, or grieving even um, about expressing expressing those kind of emotions. Um, there's like this public persona of everything's going fine that I feel like I have, like people are sort of marketing themselves to the world and like, like I'm supposed to market myself to the world, but I at least have, have like some people that, um, like I don't have to market myself to everybody. Like I, I have some friends that are sort of into, um, the idea that we, we should share our emotional lives with each other. And I, I feel very blessed for that. Um, I think that's part of why I'm volunteering at the hotline is I, um, I've had suicidal ideation in my life. Um, I've not had any attempts, but I've definitely had some pretty strong desires to like not be alive at points. And, um, just the social support I received when I was in those places was, was great. And I mean, who knows what, how, um, how, how much the, those friends gave to me at those times. I mean, I don't know what the counterfactual would be if I didn't have that support. Mm -hmm. But but I know it, it made it easier to get through, and um, and like providing that for other people, it just feels like something that's really important to me. Also for me, I, I feel like this my, my goal in coming in, and I think it's working. I think it's going to work. I'm I'm pretty early in the process, but my goal is uh, I, I'm I'm a tech guy, and I'm I'm up in my head all the time, and I, and I'm emotionally I can be quite dead, um, and in the way that my psychology goes wrong is I become anhedonic and and have no emotions and become disconnected mm. from people and and I find like this kind of work my my hope is that it keeps me connected to people it keeps me alive uh it keeps me um feeling things and uh and I think that's I think it's I think it's working it's early yeah but I think that's working well so a couple things on on all of this stuff that was just like so we're talking about about stigma and like people shutting down these experiences of negative emotion or not letting themselves access negative emotion. And when we think about suicide, um, our understanding as an organization is suicide isn't caused so much by the experiencing of negative emotions. It's, it's the stigmatization of those emotions that, that makes it hard to, um, the one fact that everyone is always surprised about is that call volume, at the hotline jumps by about 20% in the springtime and suicides nationally go up about 20% in the springtime too. Um, the running theory for why that's the case is because during the winter, it's socially acceptable to be depressed. No one wants to get out of bed during the winter. Everyone wants to stay curled up. And it's only when people start seeing a gap between themselves and their peers or themselves and the people they care about that it starts to feel like what's wrong with me and this, the shame is attached with that same negative emotion. It kind of takes it to the next level. So the work of destigmatization, that's the piece that, 
that ultimately saves lives on a large scale. Um, and then touching on what you were just saying before about the, uh, like, trying to fight numbness with human connection and accessing lots of people through the hotline as a means to that, it works really well, but I see people on different ends of the spectrum move in opposite directions. So you'll have some volunteers come in for the opposite reason. They're incredibly connected with people and their community is a community that's suffering um, and they are looking to gain tools. So they throw themselves into this like really giving space with the idea that they'll have this incredible bond with each caller. And over time, they don't get numb, but they get a little bit desensitized. We talk to a ton of people. We get 200 calls a day and you get used to going from person to person to person and not feeling as, um, not feeling the secondary trauma that you might get as intensely each time because you get exposed to so much. On the other side of things, people who struggle with human connect, uh, feeling connected and do feel like a sense of numbness sometimes, working with callers, having more time spent with talking to strangers about really intimate details from their lives every day kind of brings them towards this happy, it doesn't push them all the way towards the space where they feel connected with everyone all the time like these other people are. Everyone just kind of meets in this middle space. It's it's interesting. Kind of like how your flip-flop tan meets yeah, middle space. Yeah. It's like really distracting me. I can't yeah. just like looking at trying not to look at it and then It's a callback it to my San Diego days. <laughs> just laughing at it. Oh, flip-flop tamlines? Tam yeah, yes. yeah, flip-flop. I'm just like sitting here just like, don't look That's, at the uh, flip-flop. Flip you know, I, I saw you making faces. I'm like, oh, Danny has something to say on this topic. And no, I mean, no, <laughs> I'm just... It'd be a good um, imagine fake band name. Flip-flop tanline? Flip-flop tanline. That's tan too line. much. It's too much. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'd abbreviate it probably. Your fans would. Like, you sandal tan. Oh. oh. Now we have something... Um, yeah, well, <laughs> sorry for just, just derailing this entire No, no, we just workshopped a good name. No, um, yeah, we have to, you have to have fun while you're, while you're doing everything. Otherwise. I think that's Does something people also... Does this make your life also, easier? Well, <laughs> now that I've talked to my feet? Yeah, okay. I think, I think people also don't realize how much fun we have working on the suicide hotline, which is so dark sounding, but like, um, there's a, such a sense of camaraderie amongst volunteers and also the staff well and the callers and the callers like, like the callers like all oh, they when they were you know when you have regulars and you said they sort of recognize everyone who works there and it's like it's mm -hmm. a it's a really um wholesome feeling it's like it's, it's okay. like a little community of its own it's some kind of strange little community um but it is a community a caller just mailed us a book of poetry that they wrote oh yeah that was so sweet yeah, yeah. so i mean it's a weird place where things like that happen yeah and there there's snacks in the call room oh yeah we have snacks and we we chat a lot when when we're not getting calls right now there's clay each person is making little sculptures oh yeah they're coming out pretty well doing some good ones i've seen some really good sculptures in the call room yeah um yeah but just a little um all the little like in jokes and references and the the, the experience that the shared experience that we all have, um, or you know, 
Yeah, it's a real community, which is nice. I mean, how everything, how everyone sort of pulls together when technical difficulties happen. Oh yeah, <laughs> that that's that's the real miracle. Yeah. So, um, had uh, had this. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys. Um, have you have you do you feel like doing this kind of work, um, doing emotional support work on on hotlines, especially? Do you think it's changed you in any way? Well, I'm definitely a lot more knowledgeable about suicide than I was coming in, but at a personality level, I don't know if the work has changed me as much as the people I've been exposed to, like my colleagues and volunteers. Cause you know, you kind of like take on pieces of the personalities of the people that you spend time with. You pick up their phrases. Uh, for example, like I shared with Danny that my SO uses the phrase secular blessing a lot to describe things because she's secular, but feels blessed a lot. So that's her term of choice. And then Danny says it sometimes. Oh yeah, that's true. Or Danny shares a comic with me and it becomes my favorite comic and I save it on my phone and I show it to like a bunch of people. Um, those changes have been a lot more significant for me. And maybe that's the kind of thing that comes out when you have a community built around um, an intense thing. But I have always worked in kind of like first response and first aid uh, stuff before I switched to the mental side. And so I'm, I'm used to that. That environment is a space I'm really comfortable in. Um, it's not too different working with mental health than it was working with like physical health. For me, um, I would say that even though I haven't worked in that kind of environment until um, until recently, um, I have sort of served as the emotional support amongst friend groups and so on, mostly because the kind of people that I um, have bonded with over my life have also been mentally ill or so have so are somehow neurodivergent. And so, um, if anything, talking on the hotline... Um, taught me how to have boundaries, having a, having a time limit, having call limits, have, knowing that like this is fine for now, but this doesn't have to go home with you. Because I, I used to fall into that trap of trying to be the savior to everybody. And you, no one person can do that. That's why we all have each other. Like we're, we're here to sort of build a safety net amongst the community. But um, so I, it's helped me realize what are healthy limits and boundaries in my own life and not try and overwhelm myself with things and, and and go through burnout in my everyday life amongst my peers. Also, sometimes I give people who come to me in search of help from me personally, I give them the hotline numbers so that they can use that as a resource instead of me individually. And that, that, that takes some of the weight off my shoulders and spreads the burden amongst mine and all the other people who answer the line. And that's something that I didn't um, appreciate before I, I joined up was this sense of uh, of like the the boundary nature of of, of the uh, of the hotline. Like there's a um, and it didn't exactly just define my expectations, but I just had no concept of like what I would actually be doing once I got there. And um, so there's like a, a a time limit on all calls that are not um, that are not like a, a, an actual um, acute crisis where someone's uh, trying want, wanting to kill themselves uh, s somewhat imminently 
And um, and there's also a way that the hotline, like they they train you to not form a personal bond with the um, with the person on the other side of the call, so that the the hotline itself is the thing having the relationship with them and not the individual um, operators that pick up the lines. And and that was uh, yeah, that was something I wasn't quite quite expecting. That was uh, that was new to me. And and it it is a skill that I think um, I picked. I was I wasn't sure how I felt about it when I first walked in, and and I found out like it, I, I picked it up pretty quickly. Uh, that mindset, like it, it was a lot easier to slide into, and it makes more sense to me than, than maybe I I was worried about. Right at the end of the day, I mean, everyone who or the majority of people who are counselors on our lines, they're volunteers, and we don't want these personal bonds being built because volunteers are only there once a week and they're only committed to volunteer for a year. Um, no one's, no one caller's life should hinge on access to one volunteer. We have to be these interchanging, interchangeable parts where as people come and go, we have a lot of new people come in constantly. We have a not a lot of old people leave constantly. Um, that the service stays the same quality and that anyone can continue to access us for support. Um, it definitely can be a struggle for uh, some some volunteers when they hear a caller who's been through a really similar life circumstance to them. Not to say I've been there too, and to talk about their relationship with their experience. That's like always the worst thing to do in in most counseling scenarios, right? Like mm -hmm. you're telling your friend about how how bad you're feeling because of something, and they're like, "Oh yeah, me too." A lot of times it doesn't yeah. land right well and it also switches the roles right because then the fr then you're like oh my god i'm so sorry i had no idea you were going through this friend and you start you who was suffering start supporting your friend who you're asking for help it flips the relationship um but yeah you know, boundaries and it's not to say that each counselor doesn't bring themselves to the table in their own ways. We all have different personalities and they shine through with the skills we choose to use and the way we talk about certain things. Um, like uh, Danny and I were talking about this the other day, the way we might talk about gender on the lines would be different. And parts of it's not like Danny's self-disclosing, but parts of their experience might get surfaced where, you know, I don't bring that to the table. Um, I bring other skills to the table, but it's, uh, we, you know, we, we cultivate what works best for us. Uh, I had a thought I wanted to share, but then I forgot it. Cool. If it's important, it'll come back. Okay. We'll let, we'll let it fly. Um, oh, I wanted to talk about how, uh, how I, I feel like I've changed a little bit. Like, mm. It's only, it's only, I've only been there a few weeks, but um, I noticed that I'm, I'm very used to engaging with people in my cultural bubble, um, like talking with other tech guys who are really excited about lots of abstract ideas. And um, in, a, in my first call taking it, um, I felt really awkward because I didn't know what to say. And, um, and I feel like I'm learning to talk about like, things that everybody has in common and like be more universal and like who I can relate to instead of being stuck relating to people in my little cultural bubble. Um, I like that. Um, I don't know how far that'll progress, but I imagine, I imagine I'm going to get more of that as I go along. 
Well, one thing that happened for me when I started, I lived in the East Bay almost my whole life and kind of, I would say, have a slightly negative view of San Francisco as a city. Um, How dare you? It's the way I feel. Danny, are you a San Francisco resident? Resident, yeah, not a native. I've been here like 10 years, but still long enough. You know, and that said, I have a slightly negative view of San Francisco because I have a slightly negative view of most places. It's just that I love the East Bay. It's like the one place I have a positive feeling about. Um, But that aside, uh, being at the hotline totally changed the way that I saw the city because, you know, the people who call in, I don't know who they are if they're on the street, but I felt like I started knowing the city's personality in a way that I, I couldn't have otherwise. Like all these people, they might've been someone that I talked to and maybe were not, um, as estranged as I thought we were. And like the whole tears from, tech workers who call in to, um, SRO residents or, um, or the homeless, like the, you know, we get the whole spectrum of the city kind of reaches out to us. And I felt a lot more connected to all of it. Um, and then the other thing that made me feel really connected to San Francisco by being at the hotline was the sheer number of people who apply to volunteer. Uh, so we train 90, two new volunteers a year. Um, but we get around 300 applicants a year. So we get way more people trying to do the work than we can actually bring in. And I feel like that says a lot about a city where 300 people a year are applying to be a suicide, a volunteer unpaid suicide prevention counselor is maybe feel like a lot better about all the strangers that I saw in this like hustling, bustling city definitely changed my perspective. That's the way it changed me. It's a sign that people care about each other. Yeah. Yeah. They might not know how to do it, but they want to find a way to do it. Yeah. Well, and outwardly San Francisco can feel really desensitized to suffering. Like if you're just navigating it and you've never been there before, you see a lot of income inequality within like, five feet of each other without any like sense of exchange. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I see that in Oakland as well. (laughs) Yeah. You do see it in Oakland. I would argue not as much, (laughs) but you do. (laughs) Um, Mm. Bay area. Yeah. It is a huge income gap. There's a huge income gap. And, uh, I definitely see aspects of that represented at the hotline. Uh, sorry, aspects of it reconciled at the hotline, which is cool. Doesn't fix it, but, you know, it's just a, a space that does better. Yeah, I guess it kind of connects people across uh, class boundaries, so at least at least more so than, than we're used to and going about our commutes and to work and back home and all that. And not, and not just class. Class, race, ability, gender, sexuality. I mean religion. There's so many, you know, there are so many little bubbles that we all exist in, but the callers have very different ones and they bring them to us when they call in. And the volunteers have different circles that they run and we have a pretty, we always have room to grow with 
uh, with our diversity, but we have a pretty eclectic bunch of people that like might not have been in the same room otherwise. Yeah. Um, what's been most surprising to you about your work? Um, surprising. How fun it's been to hang out with Danny every day. Oh, dude. Well, I was going to say how, how fun it's been to hang out with, with you, Joel. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, the, I wasn't going to say that. I was not going to say that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> That wasn't actually what I was going to say. I just was copying you because you were so kind. Thank so, you. So nice that I wanted to be nice, too. But I'm not as nice as you, Joel. The listeners should know that. What was the question? Oh, uh, what's <laughs> been most surprising to you about, about your work? Um... How many people that, well, so when I started as a volunteer, the thing that was most surprising was talking to so many people who aren't in crisis. I kind of thought that a suicide hotline was like, everyone is high risk for suicide and everyone's at least feeling suicidal. And that's not the case, even the majority of the time. Um, when I joined the staff, the things that were, um, I haven't had much of a chance to reflect on it because there's been a lot of change since I started as staff. And so I just kind of like have continued to push the hotline forward by staying as in the moment as possible. And like nothing can be surprising when you're just dealing with a lot of transition constantly. Uh, you just kind of roll with it. Um, It seems like a huge logistic, logistical puzzle to coordinate uh, hundreds yeah. of volunteers and make it all work. And there's technology involved somewhere. And that's the piece that's hardest. Oh, I would no. give me an technology. emotional crisis over a technological crisis any day. Oh God, yeah. Any day. Um, yeah, th there was an issue on Thursday where the fiber went out for Market Street. Um, that's as specific as I'm willing to get about our location. And uh, and we were down with phone service and internet for a few hours, and so calls weren't coming in. Didn't we get a little fire, too? And there was a fire. And <laughs> there was a fire? A tiny one. A little oh, one. Like in the microwave or something? No, no. <laughs> someone knocked over a lamp, and the lamp caught fire. Oh. <laughs> I missed uh, that part. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was, it, it was it not enough Thursday. to set off an alarm or anything. So it was. It was a hectic day, but not that hectic. Not that it could have been well, worse. But it, it's, oh gosh, it's stressful to have like, you know, when it's technology. There's nothing I can do. I don't have any technological aptitude. Oh um, man, remember when the database was down? Yeah. That was awful. But we, did, did we process all of those yep, paper call notes? We processed all 1,400 of those paper call notes. Um, good job, us. 1,400 pages well, of good notes. job, volunteers, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, uh, has, what's, what's been surprising for you? Um, I'm surprised every, every time by how many kids are willing to self-disclose to be some stranger as being suicidal or self-harming or LGBT. Like kids will approach me after the class and come out to me or tell me what they've been going through or ask for help. And I think that's very valuable, but, and it's great, but it is surprising to me like that, that sometimes people like, cause I, you know, I don't know, putting myself in their position. Um, I can't, I don't know what I would have done at that age. 
when I was, I was suicidal, but no one ever talks to my school about it. No one ever talked to me about it. Um, so I wouldn't have known what to do. So maybe I would have said something, but I was just blown away by the fact that children, children would come forward uh, some, uh, some often in private or anonymously, but sometimes some kids would just volunteer that information, um, which is crazy. Um, there was one, um, youth who, it was a class where I had been placed in, um, without a lot of forethought and only one of the kids spoke English. So I was telling that doing the presentation just for them. And then they were translating it for the other kids to Spanish. And so I think that might be why they came forward to me with their story. And I was just like, it was, it was really mind blowing to me. And it warms my little heart to make that kind of connection. It's, uh, it's, um, re it's reminiscent to, and this, I'm only going to talk about this tangentially because this is kind of off topic, but I still do volunteer at the LGBT hotline. And um, I run a chat room there for uh, LGBTQ youth around the country. And it's kind of like that kind of report. It's surprising. Um, it's surprising what kinds of connections you can make um, with these youth who need a, a mentor or some kind of figure to sort of, um, to f look up to. And it's, um, it, it's weird for me because I, sometimes I still feel like I'm in high school myself. Like I'm, I'm like, I, I still look at myself and I think, really me, this, this deadbeat. But, um, um, but to, to, uh, it's, it makes me realize how important the work that it's not me, but the work that I do is somebody else could do this work and someone will do this work and has done it before. But th that work, it, whatever, what work it is, is crucial. And, um, it makes me so happy that that's making some kind of an impact on, on some teenager's life. Yeah. I imagine that must feel pretty fulfilling when someone comes up to you after class and they, talking with you and maybe they haven't talked to anybody about that before it's fulfilling it is sad also but it is fulfilling like no one should have to go through that least of all a kid um but it is fulfilling it it because it, 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 it means that somebody might not slip through the cracks who might have otherwise and that's yeah. that's the goal that's what we try to do well and that's also a really good indicator that you're good at what you do right oh, good like you i hope can, so yeah, I they feel trust like, me. Well, but I feel like like being trustworthy is essential for your job, and mm -hmm. that's a major sign of of your own success. I suppose. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right, and you're right. You're right. Thanks. Yeah, there, there's definitely a, a way that you're uh, very open and approachable, and like you, like you when you're talking about your own experience, like I. I've, it makes me feel like if I if I were in a crisis moment, like it would be, you were you would be someone that would be able to understand, or I could I could trust with that. Um, I don't know if that's how you talk in front of a class, but yeah, I think it's really important actually the way I talk about my um, experiences. Obviously, I will treat other people's experiences with as much gravity as they wish to give them. But when I talk about my own experiences with mental illness or suicide, I try and keep it light, not like making jokes about it, but sort of just like make it sound like it's not a huge deal because some people like they get all scared when they hear the word suicide, you know, it's a, it's a really big, heavy thing to talk about. And I just talk about it super casually. Like I don't make it sound like a good thing. I don't make it sound like an easy thing, but I'm just sort of like, you know, this is what happened to me. And so, and sometimes I will make a couple of small, dark, sarcastic jokes if I feel 
feel like the crowd can handle it. But mostly I just sort of make it sound like, oh, this is just a casual thing. This is a thing that happened to me once. And it could have, it happens to some people and it's a thing. Like, like I want to be able to talk about mental illness the same way people talk about physical illness is something treatable. Maybe not, not always curable forever permanently, but treatable and something that's not daunting and not a big scary taboo thing that we can't talk about. Um, because I remember talking about being suicidal to somebody when I was in college. Um, cause I figured it was a, it was a, an internet friend. So I figured they wouldn't be able to do anything about it anyway. And I didn't say I was going to attempt suicide or anything. I just said I'd been thinking about suicide. And the next morning I woke up and there was all these cops on my door and, um, at, at my door, it was like super, super, horrifying and I never told anyone again or not for a while after that and I didn't go to therapy and I didn't get counseling and do any of that because it was so intimidating and I don't want to have that kind of overreaction because while it's important um to be able to notice these things and catch them before it's too late or before it becomes a huge problem notice emotional problems and notice um when somebody's struggling it's also important not to overreact to the point where you push that person back into hiding and not feel comfortable coming forward with their experience. So um, that's something I think is really important to talk about. Like, it's not like this big, horrible, huge deal where it's like, oh, you're going to die. Or like, like people are afraid they'll get 5150 if they talk about suicide. And that's not, that doesn't happen. Um, and we want people, people not to be afraid of that. So I uh, try and... Um, convey that with sort of the way that I speak about it. It's all, language is important. Tone is important. Yeah. Sorry for making that intro, incredibly <laughs> loud noise. It's it, a lot it more tinny than you thought, isn't it? it? Well, yeah, I expected yeah. it to be a lot more solid. It, 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 was, it like, illustrated oh, your, your story uh, quite well. Quite well. Let, let, just to clue you in, it's the finest of Ikea, so, you, you know, you're not going to... Now, this will give you a good real noise. This, yeah. Oh, is this actually a door? Yeah, that oh, that's my a door. parents' that... old cabinet door. Oh, so it exa it's, it's the sound of knocking on a door. Because it is yeah, a... yeah, no, it's, that's, oh, that's a real it. door. So you, you can it. knock on that. I could have knocked on that. Just cut that sound in. Do you want to do in. a retake? And... No. Um, no retakes. This is... Okay. This is live. We're live. We're not live. Oh, no. But, but... This is recorded. But but I, I like to uh, you know keep things real. Well, here yeah, because there's such a, a we're not NPR. There's a slippery slope with editing, you know. It's like yeah. and one thing to cut out the ums and the errs, but then oh, you can easily move people's message around, and yeah, uh, yeah. it's not good journalism. Bad praxis. I studied journalism. I would know. No, <laughs> um, and then listening to Danny talk about their experience, I also you know. I can think of two things that have really surprised me uh, since I joined the staff. Um, one thing is uh, when you count the number of volunteers we have, we're a pretty large organization because we've got hundreds of people involved in our work, but the staff is really small. I didn't realize how much we're able to do with so little. Um, and it's not to say like we couldn't use new computers and like other things, but we, if any of you out there have money, like go ahead and give us money. Yeah. Please. Yeah. That's, um, that's what I was going to get at very subtly. Was yeah. Um, we operate like a massive service on a small budget and we do it really well. Um, which that is kind of mind boggling. I, you know, it's, published on our website, but our new annual report just came out. You can see what our finances are like. We... What finances? 
Exactly. Like we, we make it work. It's pretty cool. Um, and then the other piece that, you know, on a more, on the less finances side of, uh, of what we do, um, the objective with certain with callers is different. And for some callers, uh, success, you know, we don't have the power to stop every person who calls in from attempting or completing suicide. Uh, we're a phone service, we're remote. There are just, there are limitations that we have, but, um, and so with certain callers, the goal, you know, might not be to make them never feel suicidal again. The goal might be to get them to survive an hour or to get them to survive two hours. If you can extend someone's life by a day, then you've given that person another day and that's success. Um, we have a couple callers right now who I kind of would have put in that category of if we can, if we extend, if we've extended their lives for one day, we've done a good job and we can pat ourselves on the back. And, uh, I've been feeling that way for a long time. Now it's two or three months later and all of the callers like that are still alive. They're still in crisis. But they're but, still here. But they're still here. And uh, those one day at a times are starting to add up. And that was really surprising. I um, I felt like we'd been really successful, but I wasn't optimistic. And now I'm starting to see for, you know, for a couple of these like really in crisis folks, uh, a path forward. And that's so enlightening. It's so thrilling to see. Yeah, that's one thing I've learned on the hotline is like the power of one day at a time and like people that seem to be really distressed. Like the thing that we focus on is like, how, how are you going to get through today? Like, what are you, what do you need to do today? Um, who do you have that you could talk to? Um, have you showered? Have you eaten? Had, have you had some water? Have you gotten outside? Those kind of things are really the, the, like in crisis, like people can hang on to those and, and um, like you said, if they can get through one day, maybe they can get through two days, and um, and there there's hope, and that's kind of what we're yeah. helping people find. Well, and it's also like it's an unreasonable expectation to ask people who are in crisis to just feel better, right? Like feeling better, it doesn't just happen; it's a long and arduous process, and so and an individual one too. And, like, yeah, yeah. Like there's no there's no formula that we can hand them to make them feel better. Exactly, and so you know the expectation isn't that someone's going to feel better today. The expectation is that we can help get them through the day because eventually, at some point in the future, they might be able to feel better. And that's the thing that we're holding on to. It's not that you know someone's life will immediately improve that day. We're just, we're, we're doing maintenance, right? We're maintaining someone's, uh, experience of making sure that it's not getting progressively worse or escalating towards suicide. Um, but the idea of, of feeling better, it's not something that we get to get to do, which is, I kind of like that. It's very, um, it meets people where they're at. It doesn't, have an unreasonable expectation for what they can accomplish. And I, I really feel like they deserve that. They, a lot of people expect, have really unfair expectations for folks who are in crisis and folks who are depressed and folks who 
are suffering and it's nice to just meet them where they're at. Yeah. There's not this expectation that they should feel good. Um, yeah. Life is horrible. Why, why, why should you feel good? Sometimes things are just garbage and uh, that's how it is. I yeah. survive out of spite. Yeah. Well, in, in telling someone that they should feel better or um, like it just, it, there's a lack of understanding and what their experience is like. And there's also a sense of judgment. It's almost insulting. Yeah. I think about my mom. Uh, she gets pretty down sometimes I, she's never been diagnosed with depression or anything like that. Um, and it's I don't want to, your mom. yeah, I don't want to pathologize anyone, uh, cause I don't have a clinical background, but, uh, but she gets really down sometimes, but she gets righteous about it. And I really empathize with that cause she'll say like, yeah, I'm upset, but the world is terrible. Like, shouldn't I be upset? Who would I be if this didn't piss me off or didn't like, make me unhappy and she's right like the world is a harsh and brutal place um and, and it's reasonable for it to be no, it, it's, it's reasonable to be upset by that and you know even if it's not just external factors maybe you know if it's just like your own internal struggles like it's reasonable to not feel good about it i hate the uh it gets better uh, concept. I, I, I understand why that campaign is the way it is, and I understand what they're fighting for, but I think it's really kind of uh, almost naive and, and, and insulting to tell someone it gets better, because sometimes it doesn't get better. Sometimes it, it gets worse, and a lot worse, or stays the same. Um, and the way I think of it, is rather than it gets better, is sort of we get better at handling and coping how uh, with, um, with life's uh, whatever life throws at you it's like doesn't mean even if stuff doesn't get better we can get stronger we can get better capable of dealing with it and it's better to encourage i feel that and because i know if somebody had told me oh it gets better when i was suicidal that would have just made me angry in fact it probably was told to me and it did made make me angry because it's kind of just is it's 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 sort of just like painting with this big brush over your whole experience, kind of like, oh, it's nothing. It's going to be fine. You don't know my life. But, yeah. um, so it's very important to sort of like recognize what people are going through and which sometimes is terrible. You can't just say like, oh, so you lost your house and your marriage and, you know, and your, your parents died, but it gets better. Like, no, oh gosh, no. Yeah. And, but like touching on what you said before, I really like that. It's not about like, it's not about things getting better. It's about, people building tools to deal with all the shit. Like mm -hmm. that's thanks for using the shit word. Yeah. I was like, I wanted, wanted to say to. bullshit. So I, bad. I could hear it. I, I've marked my podcast as a, uh, um, what they, they, they have like a marking and whether or not you have explicit language. And a lot of times I don't use it, but I still, I mark every episode as that just so I have the freedom to say whatever, whatever the fuck I okay. want. Oh, I feel like one of the <laughs> so kids like, in my class, because I, I, I accidentally let a cuss word slip in in one of the classes, and everyone was just... They probably loved it. Oh, they do. They <laughs> always do. I, mean, I try not to, because I feel like the teachers it, probably I, it love it. Water, um, the teachers love it less. But it's away from the electronics. Yeah. 
Um, oh, sorry. You got distracted by spilling water. Doesn't matter. I wasn't saying anything important. No, you swore in front kidding. of some kids and now everybody knows. <laughs> it, it, it might. I don't, I don't know if Apple has like some algorithms where they're not going to recommend my podcast to people because I mark it explicit, but it's just like... Explicit plot. It does make it, make it sound a lot sexier than it is. Yeah, like this could be dangerous. This could be a dangerous podcast. There might be some language that's harsh. And what's the opposite of an explicit podcast? It would implicit? be an implicit podcast. <laughs> so, like, I mean, it would be nice to some, have uh, BS. Yeah, some BS. Let's have like a. Let's make a podcast that's all about just implying really vulgar things. <laughs> yeah, that maybe that'll be my next project, Joel. It's not going to be my next project. That could be no. your project. I, I, my next project is reviewing people. <gasps> oh, I want to do Instead of books that. and movies, just review people. <laughs> We've talked about it. Yeah, and maybe books and movies too. But but people. and people. And like not just public figures, people from your for your everyday life. Okay. Yeah. Jan at the in the, at the line of Berkeley Bowl. Damn it, Jan. Is there going to be is there going to be like some sort of rubric by which you rate these people? <laughs> like, you know, for video games, you have like uh, like gameplay, sound, uh, um, replayability. Like, they have a certain yeah, me- yeah. metric. So the big metric is how much of a piece of shit someone is. <laughs> okay, and um, I haven't figured out They're exactly what criteria <laughs> goes in. It's is, really it's like is, a way is, to is, vent is, about is Jan people. At the Berkeley Bowl, like particularly probably. I don't know. That was an example. <laughs> Although there was this person Bowl, who was like, like with their cart. Well, it was so like, weird. We were like sitting. I get so mad when someone hits me with their cart. We were sitting in um, on the curb eating plums. My partner and I were sitting on the curb at Berkeley Bowl eating plums, and somebody in a Prius, um, they they were already right. They were parked right on the curb, and they got up. They they got into their car to leave or something. I don't know what they wanted to do, but they just like backed right into us, even though they were already on the curb. So they just like started driving over the curb at us, and it was just so annoying. And we threw trash on their car and left. Um, I would review them as um, how many out of how many pieces of shit. Five? Five. I would say four out of five pieces of shit for sheer obliviousness. And also, they were not, they did not seem particularly bothered that they just like nearly hit two people. Why not five? Because they were probably, they probably didn't mean to hurt anybody, but they were, they just did not give a shit if they did. Well, and, you know, a, a low pollution vehicle. (laughs) <laughs> true, true. But at the same time, you get an, an ex. That's like you, half a piece of shit for having a Prius anyway. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so this is the criteria that go into it. This is how how it would work. Yeah. So we'll tell this people. This is a pilot. To, we'll tell people to uh, you know keep their eyes peeled for trolls. It's like rotten the rotten people. I feel like I should tomatoes. start a new hotline. That's uh, something like San Francisco uh, homicide prevention or uh, manslaughter prevention. So people oh, we can, do that too. Can call uh, call. Call, people, call in people like that car, like, oh, this car like has these oblivious people <laughs> almost running people over. <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe we can try to contact them and try to tell them to be less oblivious. Oh, God, I was working at the bar. I'm sorry for going on. Well, you don't have to keep include this. So I was working in the bar last night, and a bunch of, about maybe too. nine or ten people um, came in at once. In some, So I was checking all the IDs. Uh, I was working at the door, and um, there was a lot of people, so I was, like, going through it pretty fast. And then one person, after I checked their ID and they let them through, I'm like, okay, you're good. They're like, 
uh, aren't you going to wish me a happy birthday? And it was the worst thing. I was just so pissed off because there were still like five people to go. And it was like, I had just looked at the year. I hadn't looked at the, the date, you know? So I was, how was I, oh my God, it was so entitled and I was just not having it. That person is maybe like, that's like, that's not that much of a piece no, of shit. It was their birthday. A, but are, would they ask me to wish them a, two out of five? I, okay. Two out of five pieces <laughs> two of, out of shit. Five because they were 22. They were 22, but yeah, two out of yeah. five. And they, they're like, that's just an age where you can't, you can't get down to, to one or zero pieces of shit, no matter what you're 22. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're yeah. just a piece of garbage. You're, you're in stuck. General. Yeah. Also, they just seemed it's annoying. Judgmental. They just seemed annoying in general. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm no, that's, judgmental. That's okay. No, I was talking about but myself for judging them for being Danny, 22. Would you just do me a favor and, um, your mic's starting to lean over to the side, and I'm like a little worried. Get some like, scratching shirt sounds. Well, no, I'm just worried it's going to be pointed. It's not going to be pointed at your mouth. It might not pick it up. These are cardioids and not omnidirectional. Better. Yeah. Um, okay. Sounds good. Um, let's, uh, let's. Mine's still perfect. Yeah, yours is doing all right. Um, <laughs> so let's let's wrap, let's wrap this up. I feel like, like the worst people. We shouldn't be talking about this on a <laughs> podcast where we talk about being non-judgmental, and, like listening to people on the phone. Well, the the truth of the matter is. If you call us, we won't be judgmental at all. What but if that lady in the Prius like, called us? Well, you wouldn't judge her for calling. No, I wouldn't. Of course no. not. But, yeah, see? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the, the thing is, you know, in our day-to-day lives, like, that's self-care. You gotta vent. You gotta let it out. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, it's, it's really interesting with this podcast, like, I can't be NPR because I'm willing to, like, just kick back and go off topic. Um, but, but I do like to do like tackle serious topics. So it's sort of like in between like an NPR show and, and like a more niche comedy podcast. I don't know. I don't know quite what I am. You're whatever you need to be. Yeah. But let's, let's, uh, let's wrap up. I've kept you guys for about an hour now. Um, so, uh, let's see any, um, final words, things you'd like to say to people listening. I'm actually a really good person, I promise. <laughs> um, I can't I'm not that good of a person. I can't vouch for either of them or myself in that regard. But um, what I will say is uh, I think one of the most interesting things about working at a suicide hotline is, oddly enough, once you're in it and you're working with people, Suicide isn't that scary of a thing to talk about and address. There are things that can make it more scary. Like, uh, you know, for me, I'll just say like firearms always elevate my, uh, just yeah. a little bit of level of stress oh, gosh, because they're, one, yeah. they've got this degree of intensity around them. But even someone who might be at high risk for suicide, like, Talking about suicide, once you get used to it, it's really not scary at all. Um, and that's a real, that's been a real takeaway for me from, from the work is, uh, it, it is okay to bring it up with strangers and to ask about it. It's actually really fun to like go to dinner parties or events and, you know, everyone like kind of talks about what they do and I get really interesting reactions where you can see people feeling really timid about having the first space they've ever had to ask questions about suicide. And it's not that they've ever <clears throat> felt suicidal before. Most people know someone who has or know someone that has been affected um, by should... suicide. But uh, but it's really cool to have like 
people start to feel like they can ask questions about it for the first time just by virtue of working in this field. I, that's one of the biggest privileges. You should do what I do and bring a bunch of blank note cards in a, in a box to the dinner party and then everyone can ask their questions anonymously. I, I like to have them have to put their name on it. No, I should do it anonymously. I give them my email. They can... I, I, I yeah. Oh, that's nice. I, yeah, I, I'll give, I give out my... I would say, like, I give out my business cards to strangers two or three times a week. Um, nice. I was at a theater performance the other night and was just talking to someone in line about it. And they asked what I did, and we started talking. And uh, now we've been emailing a little bit. It's really cool the way that the way that happens. Cool. Sorry about the hiccup in the middle of that. Oh no worries. Bodies, um, man. Yeah, bodies. You can't, what are you gonna do? Can't get rid of them. Um, I'm gonna replace my diaphragm with a robot diaphragm as soon as I can. So it's transhumanism. So I, so I don't get any more hiccups. Um, nice. Yeah. Good. Uh, Danny, do you do you want to tie any bows on on this box before we ship it? Um. Honestly, it's just, I'm just, all I can do is reiterate what I've said before. And in, in addition to the fact that, like, I think this is something, like, suicide prevention is something everyone should eventually know, which is why I teach, teach it in schools. Um, the way I see it, it's kind of like first aid um, for the mind, like, where you might, know, like, or CPR. Like, sometimes somebody you know might be going through a crisis and you may not need that that information now, but you never know when you might need it. So it's important to learn how to deal with it and how to handle that kind of situation if it does come up, because it's more common than you realize. And we I would love to live in a world where it was easier for people to access that kind of mental health care at low cost, but it is not easy for people. And sometimes mental health care is a luxury, even for me, um, somebody who has a job, it's still... I can still barely afford therapy and I go to a sliding scale um, therapy option and I'm still broke. So um, I think we all have to be each other's therapists sometimes. Not that that should be a burden that should fall on any one person, but just we need to sort of, I think it'd be important, it's important that the community learns all these kind of like healing skills to sort of help each other in an imperfect world where um, um, mentally mental illness doesn't see the kind of attention that it always needs. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, I like that vision. I, I wish everybody um, learned basic counseling skills in school and had a chance to practice them. Um, I, I think like part of what I, I'm grateful for uh, this work because it, it makes me feel like the, the ideal is that people shouldn't be alone or shouldn't be forced to be isolated with their with their um, emotional pain and uh, or, or difficulty. And um and like this work, this, the, the, the hotline makes me feel like it's, it's living up to that ideal a little bit. Like, like you have, you have somewhere to go where you're not alone. And, and I, and I wish that there was more connection and, and, and people had more of that in their lives. One question for you. Yeah. Um, the things that we talked about in the class, like basic counseling skills, uh, stuff along those lines, have they made any impact? Uh, like any practical impact in your life outside of the hotline? Do you find you use them with like, being frank, I use it with my family all the time. Sure. Um, I use it with you. <laughs> hmm, tell me more. Um, well, I, I've been uh, pursuing uh, various kinds of uh, counseling and intentional relating type curriculum for a few years now. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the basic counseling skills that we went over in class 
uh, were things that I had been pursuing. Um, and yeah, it's, I think, um, I know how to listen to someone and, without trying to fix their problems. And I'm hoping that makes people, uh, uh, th that's improved my impact on people's lives. And, and I'm a lot less afraid of people and I'm less, less afraid of emotions having had this experience. Um, so I think I'm just more comfortable with people and that changes everything. Cool. All right. Well, we've, we've wrapped bows up we've been going for about an hour. I think it's, thank you very much for being with me and, uh, thank you everybody for listening. I think that's a good, good place to go. Tight. Bye folks. Just cut, cut it off.